Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, do we tear down statues of historical figures or add context to their story? How do we fix issues of systemic racism within policing? Some suggestions coming up. Is the President of the United States encouraging violence in that country as part of his election campaign? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We should probably go soon. What do you think? You want to wait a bit? Come on. Kirk gets shy when the mic comes on. All right. Ready? I'm Curtis Salton, Scott's son. Medical officials are saying a COVID-19 vaccination should be ready by mid-2021. My hair will be unmanageable by then. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Oh, man, that never gets dull from this end, let me tell you. I think we should, like, probably, we should record this video, uh, record it while you're doing it to see the uh, shenanigans that kind of go on before... uh, It gets to what you hear. All right, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. It is week number 25 of the Scott Thompson Home Show. You can jump on board. Love to hear from you. Facebook and Twitter. Also, uh, the commentary waiting for you at 900CHML.com. You can send us a note via the website at Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. All right, let's move on. Uh, this weekend's uh, Defund the Police protest took place in various places across the country. Uh, one in Montreal saw the toppling of a statue of Sir John A. MacDonald, uh, and this has reignited the statue uh, debate across the country. What is the answer here? Do we uh, remove these statues? Do we put them in a museum? Do we uh, perhaps bring them into context with a plaque beside them that tells the whole story of the person uh, in the statue. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. Uh, Alyssa PR, she is with us now. Uh, Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, yes, and I hope you're doing well too, Scott. So what are your thoughts? Uh, what's the difference between, um, uh, say, a John A. McDonald or any other statue or a Canadian or a Confederate flag? Is this one of these situations where each one has to be uh, uh, you know, evaluated individually. Where do you start with this? You know, here we are at a, at a time in our own history where I don't think anybody thought we'd be thinking about this. If we were on the phone five years ago, and I'm not sure that we would have thought we we would have been talking about this, Scott. So the times have became have, have made people more aware and or woke to the fact that maybe all our historical heroes. Yes, they may have some blemishes throughout their career. Um, however, maybe there are some of those that we should not be celebrating at all and that are big enough that they should not become icons and or monuments. And so we've seen this happening in the States. We saw it with the Confederate flag and uh, the connotations that it stood for and the number of statues that have been coming down across the USA because of those people who had uh, ties to slavery. We just recently read of a medical school where the name has now come off of the residence because he was well-known for, uh, this particular doctor was well-known for having slaves. And, and, you know, you have to imagine if you are a person of color and staying in a residence named after somebody who held your ancestors as slaves, I have to imagine that would make that person feel very uncomfortable. So prior to that, I don't think many people gave it a thought, and many people didn't take other feel other people's feelings or historical ancestries into consideration. However, that's all now flipped on its head, and we need to start taking a closer look as to what our icons or our historic icons truly represent, and if they truly represent what we consider as being, because we're here, uh, a good Canadian. So do we uh, learn from the past or do we just try to remove it? Do we do do we take a statue of a John A, let's say, do we move it into a museum? Uh, do we leave the statue where it is, but put a plaque up that states the whole story and, and what's happened here? And, you know, uh, you know, the trials and tribulations of, of the particular person. Is that the answer or is the answer just removing them? 
I don't think the answer is moving. I think the answer is, is providing appropriate context. And I think that that's very, very important. Um, you know, when we read those little plaques that often sta- are in front of statues around, you know, when you go through a park all around the country, it gives you some sort of a historical context or a little story about uh, what that person and why that person has been is represented. But they don't tell the whole story, Scott. And I like your idea of saying, you know what? Yes, he did great things, but... There was a time. So, you know, you can't whitewash history just to talk about the good things. You know, it's not like your resume where you're not going to put the bad things that you did on a job, right? So, you know, we do that all the time. But when it comes to historical figures, because once a story is set in stone, so to speak, it's set in stone. And it's very hard to correct the record moving on. That's why in my business, um, when I'm doing public relations strategy with a client, we always have to make sure that everything is evidence-based and that the numbers can hold up. So if you decide if your if your numbers or your facts are a little bit wishy-washy and they're covering up for something, then you know, maybe you shouldn't you know you shouldn't be talking about it in the first place. So I think that moving forward, when we start talking about people that we want to, and I'm going to say the word idolize or commemorate um, in the form of a permanent monument, I think we need to tell the whole story and not just the good bits. The other thing that I find fascinating in all this, and, and I, I, I wrote this in my commentary today, that it, you know, it, it just seems odd that today's society zeroes in on events or leadership of the past to blame them, because we need someone to blame, I guess, for our current woes, when in fact, that's where society was back in those days it's not john a mcdonald it's just he's the guy with the statue the rest of society was fine with all of this this is where society was so do does everybody who who is critical of the statues go back and look at their own family trees look in their own vaults to see how their family reacted to certain positions of another period uh it seems like John A. McDonald did all these bad things uh, against everyone's wishes. I don't think that was the case. He was the politician of the day. And much like in today's society, don't blame the politician. Blame society who puts him there or her there. Yeah, I don't know, Scott. I mean, you make a good point, but it's a very slippery slope. So we look at, you know, what led to World War II, you know, in terms of Nazism. Like, what do we say? Well... You know, that was the time of the, that, that, that's what was happening in that historical context. People just didn't like this particular race. So they decided that the best thing to do would be to exterminate them. But that's just how pe- the prevailing thinking at the time. Yeah, but the, yeah, but the, the point is, yeah, I see where you're going. Sorry, go ahead. Make you your point. I mean? Yep, go ahead. So I understand that we, um, our historical societies took certain facts and certain, um, ideologies uh, as verbatim, maybe without questioning them. Uh, And maybe some people did question them, although, you know, maybe not a lot is written about, you know, the other side of certain historical contexts. But once you know, the the thing about society is that you have this ability to, you know, to, that's why we study history. We study it to in order to, to keep understanding and exploring historical context and how it relates to today. Because if we don't learn from history, we'll never be able to move forward with our future. So I, I think that history under, does study. The study of history does look at the context of why people thought that way during that time. But it also shows the evolution of going from point A to point B because times change. Um, facts become more apparent. There's different spokespeople providing context. So not to do that and always give a pass to, well, that's just the way people thought. Personally, um, I have a hard time with that. But there are a lot of people who do subscribe to it, depending on the situation. Um, so basically what you're saying is having a statue of John A. McDonald is like having a statue of Hitler. No. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like, help me out. No, help me out here. I'm, I'm going right I mean, to the edge I mean, here with you, Alyssa. Saying, what we're saying is, is providing context. Yeah. That if you're now going to have a statue of John A. McDonald, it's got to include, it should include everything. 
And for this particular, I mean, I don't have the answers to this. I mean, some people say, take that statue that was torn down and put it in a museum and talk about why it was torn down. Yeah. Um, I think that this is a very, very contentious time for historians um, all over the world to come to grips with our history. We will always still think of Sir John A. as the founder of Canada. I mean, that is his claim to fame. However, there are these, you know, there are these other, um, you know, points of uh, within his historical context that really haven't come to light since until maybe in the last few years. But I think that those stories need to be told and not whitewashed. How we decide to tell them, I'm going to leave it to the historians to try and figure out. Is it because with the indigenous uh, genocide, it 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 kept going? It, it nobody systemically, it just kept going from one generation to another to another to another till finally, 150 years later, 100 years later, we're discovering. Sheesh, we should have put a stop to this before. Whereas something, uh, the other side of this with the, with, with your example of Hitler, for example, that was identified and stopped relatively quickly, certainly not quick enough, but relatively quickly in historic terms as compared to something like this, which seemed to go on for generations. Does that, does that change anything in any way, Alyssa? You know, I think that you brought up a lot of good points there, Scott. Uh, you know, historical context needs to keep being studied. And yeah. how we interpret it is 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 really ha- has become more important than ever. And when it comes to our First Nations, Nations people, there has been so much that because of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that I, as a Canadian, have learned that I never learned before because there was no history. And on any of the history books that I studied, nobody was talking about residential yeah. schools. Yeah. But now there is. And that is a serious blight on Canadians, Canadian history. It really is. And we can see how it's become that whole treatment of our First Nations people has become systemic in the way that we still treat them. And then the way that they are still trying to fight for just some, even some very basic rights. So if we don't talk about history, the status of people who have had lower status, let's say, will never ever change unless we provide context and we allow for that change. So if we allow for the change, that some people are very, very uncomfortable with. And that is what we need to come to terms with. And so when we talk about systemic, people don't understand, I think, well, I think people are starting to understand what systemic means and how an action keeps getting perpetuated and doesn't change the status of the person that it's happening to until you reach a boiling point. And when they reach that boiling point, everybody's like, what, 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 what? But, um, you know, well, it wasn't happening to you. You had the privilege of not having any of those injustices happen to you. So that's what's taking people a longer time to create that switch yeah. in their minds that they need to start acting differently, talking differently, and also providing different context to our, our history. I remember having this discussion uh, last week with uh, with an expert that was saying, you know, I think people get offended when you say something like, or white people get offended when you say something like uh, systemic racism because uh, it gives them the feeling that they're being racist. And that's not the situation. There's lots of people who aren't racist that are operating within a systemic racism, uh, 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 racist situation but just don't even know it because it hasn't been brought to their attention. So we have to stop being offended by this and just understand it. I agree. I, I agree. You know, you've never walked into a bank and said, I need a mortgage for a house. And they're like, well, I don't know. I don't like your name. So, or you wanted to move into an area and then felt completely unwelcome. Or you wanted to send your kid to school in a certain area, but you couldn't. So we don't, we don't suffer. Many of us don't suffer from those injustices. And that's where systemic comes from. So it's not that we're, I I don't think it's that people are pointing fingers and saying, you're a racist because you've allowed this systemic uh, nature to happen. I think what they're saying is, you know enough, we're trying to point this out. So now that you know, how could you help us change? And getting to that point of change is the hardest part of all.
And, and, you know, we certainly see this with Black Lives Matter. And then, you know, the opposite side will say, oh, you know, all lives matter. Well, mm, there's a perfect example of kind of missing the point. Uh, what about more equal representation of memorials, plaques, statues, or whatever? So, you know, next to John A., have a prominent indigenous leader who was trying to fix this. I mean, is that the answer? And why not? Because nobody's ever considered having that before. Like right next to him. You know, and why not? I think that these are just some of these things that change that some may be easier fixes and some might be more long-term fixes. But I think that providing more opportunity to show those various facets of our history in a way that creates greater awareness for people, and if that means um, creating monuments or opportunities to learn more about our history, you know, there's an organization in, in Ottawa called Historica Canada, which is dedicated to doing that. And we see um, a lot of those minutes. You know, we used to see them yeah, the heritage minute, growing yeah. up, and now we're seeing them more and more often. I think that that's a great start. And I bet that they're sitting there thinking, okay, we need to, and, they, and they've already done, I think, a good job of showing all different facets and of all different types of people that have made their mark in Canadian history. But I think that we are going to see from them a lot more of a diverse, and I don't know this for sure, but I'd have to think that, that this is what they'll do. They'll show a lot more diversity on those people who made Canada, Canada. And I think that that's the type of thing that we should be looking forward to. Alyssa Freeman has been with us. Alyssa PR, AlyssaFreeman.com. As always, Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank, thank you, Scott. You too. 1226 News on the way. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, also talking on, on the same sort of issue, systemic racism, and we certainly have seen what's happening and going on in the United States with the demonstrations and protests that are going on. Uh, but many are looking at that in this country as well. Uh, and, 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 and say, you know, although it may not be as prevalent and as displayed as it is in the United States, it certainly exists here. Uh, systemic racism in policing in Canada and approaches to fixing it is a new, uh, McDonald Laurie Institute commentary by Christian uh, Lepret, and uh, it's fascinating on, as it talks of uh, various ways uh, in which uh, police have started in this uh, down this uh, road and ways to uh, change policy and the direction. Uh, Christian is also with the Department of Political Science and Economics at the Royal Military College at Queen's End is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am indeed. Always a pleasure to be on with you. When this discussion, let's go back to George Floyd, because, you know, I think those eight minutes and 46 seconds is what really brought a lot of this, although there's been many cases before and and since then, this certainly brought it to the forefront and and, and started uh, allowing people to ask questions if there is systemic racism. And a lot of people had a hard time answering that question. Is there systemic racism in policing and other institutions? Yeah, so I think the segue between your previous conversation and this conversation is that ultimately the rule of law in modern democratic society is meant to apply equally to all people uh, in that society. And I think uh, what we see in these conversations is that there is at least a perception, um, and likely if we look at some of the data, also fact that the rule of law um, does not apply equally to um, all citizens and all members of our society, um, in part because it gets enforced differently, because some uh, some communities feel more policed, because some communities feel that police use different types of techniques on them versus sort of how they engage with other communities. And so I think this is ultimately a, an ongoing conversation and an ongoing struggle that dates back to the French Revolution about um, uh, how we can make sure that in a deeply diverse, um, pluralistic society, um, that all citizens um, are not only empirically treated equally, uh, but also are perceived, uh, perceive themselves as being tre- uh, treated equally before the law. And so that's why this is a broader conversation also about um, uh, not just policing, but the broader structures behind policing. And I always try to remind listeners that we put a lot of onus on the sworn members who I think the most recent months between the pandemic um, and some of the challenges that they've endured as a result of public criticism have maybe been the most difficult for uniformed members in their entire career. 
And so to understand that rather than putting all the onus on the frontline patrol officers that respond, that there are broader structural issues about leadership, about management, about transparency, uh, about accountability, about governance, uh, that ultimately drive the way that sworn members respond. And I think the conversation about systemic racism hints at the fact that there are structural issues that we need to address. And until and unless these are addressed, um, we can tinker at the margins in terms of the outcomes at the front line. But I think to lay the onus on the sworn members of the front line uh, is the wrong place to address our concerns. Why do why does society have a hard time identifying this or even admitting it's there? So I think there's a series of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, one is the Hollywood effect that most people I think have a rather impoverished understanding of law enforcement, security, intelligence issues, and the enforcement they have tends to come from TV shows. Um, and if you look at television shows, they have they're fiction. By and large, they have nothing to do or very little to do with the way investigations work and with the way policing works. But that's, I think, broadly the, uh, um, broadly the, the, the perception. And so I think it's a sort of area where everybody has a view. Uh, it's a little bit like education or like healthcare, where every member of society has a view of what ails the system uh, and what should be done differently. So everybody becomes sort of a, a backseat driver on how things could or should or need to change. And as a result politicians are very reticent to open up police acts because they know it's going to bring everybody out of the woodwork. And by and large, politicians stand nothing to gain because the conversation tends to become very controversial and very tense, not just among the public, but also with police associations, with police leadership. Um, And so I think politicians really like to shirk their responsibilities on this. But it's ultimately in a democracy, the politicians we have to get engaged because they set the laws. They determine the budgets. They determine the framework conditions under which police operate. They provide the tasking in some ways for police services boards that are ultimately uh, the governance authorities in a province such as Ontario. And that I would say if we look at some of the recent investigations and reports of police and police services boards that haven't been doing the hard job that they should be doing, that haven't been asking the hard questions. Um, And so I think it it, it hearkens at this much broader challenge that we face where we really need to look much more systematically at the the broader issues uh, that ultimately result in both the quantity and quality of the service delivery uh, that the critics uh, are concerned about. Uh, You mentioned this not a frontline officer issue. This is leadership. This is management. This is more to the core structural issues uh, within that. Can you give us some sort of example? So, look, of course, there are the odd members who misbehave. And this is why we have independent accountability bodies. So I don't want to say that none of them ever misbehave. But the number of people who get exonerated, this is not an indication that somehow the system is rigged. But rather, I think it's an indication of that, by and large, given the thousands of interactions that police have with the public every day, the vast majority of members behave with utmost professionalism under often extremely difficult and challenging, uh, um, and, and, and challenging circumstances. So when it comes, for instance, to leadership and management issues, look at, for instance, the way police organizations promote. They promote from within. You join at the bottom, you work your way up. And so we end up with a chief who's not just in charge of the police operations, but who's in charge of budgets, who's in charge of HR, who's in charge of the training regime. Um, and I would argue that look, if you look at other corporations other in, in, in our society, we tend to have professional HR managers, we tend to have civilian-led organizations, um, we tend to have uh, professional uh, uh, financial managers in charge of those files. And so I think police chiefs don't have the training, the education, the experience, by and large, to run these very large organizations. And so when people are unhappy with the service delivery, they change out the RCMP commissioner or they change out the local chief and they put in a new chief and they expect uh, all these miraculous sort of transformations. And, you know, we all know that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different outcomes. And so that in itself should be a call to question about whether the way we educate, we train police leaders, we promote police leaders, 
whether that is really the most effective and efficient way uh, of running um, an increasingly complex uh, law enforcement system with a growing array of tasks such as mental health um, for the 21st century or whether we actually need to revisit uh, the entire system and the way people end up in senior decision-making decisions within that system. So how do you change something that systemically has been the same for so long? As you mentioned, uh, starting at the bottom, working your way up. There's lots of arguments, you know, when you hear, oh, you know, this chief is a, you know, is a cop's chief. They, they you know, walked the beat. They did this and, and moved themselves, uh, you know, all the way up the, the top of the ladder and such. How do you change something that is, you know, that it's, this is right fundamentally to the core of the institution. So bureaucracies are very good at reproducing themselves. And so the leadership and the management that we see from senior leaders is the leadership and management, by and large, with some exceptions, um, that they themselves experienced when they grew up in the organization. Because they're heavily socialized in the organization, most police uh, senior leaders uh, grow up in the same organization. They don't switch organizations. So uh, they have sort of limited perspective on on how things are done elsewhere. And so my, one of my long-term arguments is, why is it that we have police organizations that are led by police chiefs? We've, we, 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 we don't have, um, you know, uh, say, 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 public parks organizations that are led by people who came up in public parks. We have those organizations led by professional bureaucrats. Um, and so I think there's a conversation here about whether the police should, of course, be in charge of operations. But I would argue, let's get the police out of all the other things in terms of running these organizations and let's civilianize these organizations. Let's send a message to the public that the people who are ultimately in charge of these organizations are not uniformed members. The uniformed members are strictly in charge of the operational part of running the police organization. Now, police associations hate this conversation because it means cutting down on the number of senior positions for senior uniformed leadership, which by and large tend to be quite well remunerated, uh, $180,000 upwards for, for instance, uh, you know, uh, some inspectors and, uh, and deputy chiefs and chiefs. Um, but the question I think that the public is asking, are they really getting value for money in terms of what they invest in at least some of the senior leadership and whether it is time to revisit that um, and, and think about whether these organizations really need to be rethought from the ground up? Are, you bring up a valid point here, Christian. Are we expecting too much of the police? Because before the discussion of defund the police was rampant the discussion was we need more training we need them to do this we need them to do that we need them to be better uh, equipped for mental health better equipped for uh, technological uh, crimes better equipped for terror related things uh, are, are we asking them to do too much and then when they can't do any specific thing uh, that well we're then piling on um, is this a situation where again as you say this all needs to be simplified well, look over the last 25 years, right? So I think if you look at what we expect from police, it's essentially risk management, right? So police are supposed to protect us from all sorts of risks. And the number of risks from which they're supposed to protect us has grown substantially. For instance, with up to 40% of calls for service now being related to mental health types of issues. So part of that is due to the fact that we've cut social services elsewhere, especially in small and rural communities, um, but also in larger cities where you simply, you know, the one organization that is there 24-7 uh, is, uh, is your uniform, if the uniform, the sworn members from your police service. And so by default, they've sort of become the social workers of first resort, and they've taken that on because in many cases there aren't other agencies to respond or s respond in sort of the timely manner that uh, certain types of crises uh, uh, might require. But at the same time, politicians have not intervened and said, for instance, you know, here are the boundaries. This is what we want our police service to do, and this is what we don't want our police service to do. This is where we need other agencies to step up. So police sort of have stepped into the fray uh, to fill the gaps that have increasingly emerged. At the same time, there's a societal um, expectation 
um, with regards to we have a much lower level of tolerance for violence. And so on the one hand, we're asking police to control what is usually issues related to violence. But at the same time, we have growing expectations that this be done in a nonviolent way. And so we're setting police up for contradictions and ultimately failure if we're not more specific in terms of telling police what is it that we want you to do, what is it that we don't want you to do, and how exactly do or don't we want you to do it, rather than kind of ever expanding what we expect police to do, um, and yet at the same time we want them to do it um, uh, with just talking to people and without ever using any violence and uh, de-escalating. That all sounds fine and good, but look, Many of the people police deal with not only are very in very challenging circumstances, um, but there's a reason why people call police rather than trying to engage these individuals themselves. And so I think uh, we also need to have uh, a bit of a conversation about um, uh, having a better understanding. You know, I, you wouldn't want me criticizing the way you run your radio show as someone who's never run a radio show, and yet I think um, lots of citizens feel licensed to be able to criticize how police do their jobs rather than if they have concerns, uh, lodging complaints through the formal complaint system and making sure we have a qualified professional standards investigation um, for members where uh, the public feels they didn't conduct themselves in the way that uh, the public expected to. Are we at a turning point here, Christian, with George Floyd, uh, what has happened with Jacob Blake? Uh, what's the next step? Is this a turning point? We are absolutely at a critical nexus because what we've seen, I think, over the last two and a half decade, decades is an increasing divergence between the expectations of the public and the way police do business. There is reform, but the reform is tepid and slow on the parts of police, and public expectations continue to evolve much faster than police reform. And so the gap between police practice and public expectations continues to widen. And if we don't take aggressive measures now, the situation is going to become worse, is going to become more tense, and is going to grow into a greater crisis than we have today. But it ultimately requires the public to drive politicians to make some critical decisions that politicians have been trying to shirk because there's nothing to get in it for them to gain. And I think this is ultimately what the conversation here is about. How do we get, um, how do we uh, make sure that we align uh, police business and practice more closely with the public expectations of the 21st century. Christian Lepret has been with us, and it is a commentary at the McDonald Laurier Institute, Systematic Racism in Policing in Canada and Approaches uh, to Fixing It, and, of course, from the Royal Military uh, College at Queen's University. Christian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been talking uh, in the last segment uh, in regard to statues and uh, what is happening uh, with them and uh, the, the whole social discussion that is going on right now. We're going to continue this and feel free to jump in. We would love to hear from you. Uh, obviously, Facebook, Twitter, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com, and the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. It is the Scott Thompson Home Show. Willers, come back at the station, uh, keeping us between the pipes. Uh, we've certainly seen uh, the uh, violence and what has been happening in the United States uh, as their presidential campaign uh, heats up. Democrats are accusing uh, the U.S. president of encouraging violence that we were seeing. Let's bring in Ryan Hurl, assistant professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Ryan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. No problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we get into what's happening south of the border, because I guess there's been a little bit of this happening uh, there as well, uh, any thoughts on to what we're seeing in, in Montreal, what we saw in Montreal over the weekend with the toppling of the John A. McDonald uh, statue? Where does this discussion go? Is this about uh, erasing that history or adding context to it and using this as a learning or a teaching moment? I'm not sure how toppling a statue adds a lot of context. Um, look, anyone who studies history, whether you're talking about Canada, the United States, any place in the world, you know, the figures who built your civilization, who built your country, once you dig down into it, they're not necessarily going to be heroes, right? There will be, you know, stories that were told about George Washington or John A. McDonald to try to make them more than human, superhuman in some sense, probably less in the case of John A. 
But the reality is, is that, of course, they were human with all the human failings that we have. So for me, the option is not sort of glorifying them in this you know, myth-making style and simply destroying images of them, destroying statues and so on. The answer is to provide context. So I must admit that I'm angry when I see these statues being thrown down, not because I think those people necessarily need to be treated as saints or as above criticism, but because I think the default position that you will arrive at is, is simply ignorance. And frankly, Canadians, we need to know more about our own history, uh, warts and all. I include myself in that. Uh, and I think that if you want to have a discussion about the faults, the errors, the mistakes of these people, have that discussion. But I, I, frankly, I, I, think I'll, I think a lot of people agree with me. I'm not sure what simply destroying a statue does. It doesn't make anybody smarter. It doesn't erase the history, right? It only erases it from our minds. Uh, why does it seem that the extremes on both sides, whether it's left or right, seem to be driving the narrative? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think in many cases is extremists tend to be more engaged and not to be too flippant about it. But people who tend to have more middle of the road uh, centrist opinions are often the people for whom politics is not top of their agenda. Uh, I think the, the people, for a variety of reasons, those who are highly engaged in politics often find themselves a push to the extremes. Maybe it's because they're more driven by theory or ideology and maybe a little bit less driven by actual experience. So sometimes that's why younger people, whether on the right or left, are find themselves pushed to extremes. They get sort of caught in a logic of ideology that's not tempered by that much experience, the, just the experience of growing older, having a job, having responsibilities and a family, um, and just maybe even seeing more of the world that can you know, illustrate or at least illuminate some of the limits of ideology. Do so, we have, uh, I, sorry, I go ahead. That's, and that's kind of an unavoidable problem. Do we have to be on either this side or that side? Whatever happened to agreeing to disagree? Yeah, I'm with you uh, 100% there. Uh, I'm not, I think that perhaps this being the year 2020, um, we're finding, we're finding collegiality, we're finding moderation a little bit more difficult to achieve. I think that, and no, I'm not an expert on this, you have to think that psychologically, uh, the effects of the COVID shutdown are, can be affecting people. And not even, even if it's not affecting everyone, if it's even affecting a small number of people. Um, it can, you know, it can lead to very strange behavior. It can lead to antisocial behavior. Uh, but it is, it's always a cha- it's always a challenge. It's not as if partisanship and extremism is something new. You know, arguably the very first book on political science was history, was, uh, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. And the way he describes the conflicts between oligarchs and Democrats back in ancient Greece you could change some of the words, change some of the names. You think he could be describing cities in the United States today. Hmm. So it's always a danger. And unfortunately, um, unfortunately, there's no easy solutions except for people to point out the sort of the potential dangers here when you engage and or indulge in extremism. Uh, things can always get worse. Things can get much worse than they are now. And I think that we have to focus people's attention on those things that, you know, once once violence gets started, you don't know where it's going to go. And you can't assume that people in the United States or in Canada are necessarily better than societies that have broken down into violence once the violence has gotten started. We're all human beings, right? And human nature doesn't change, whether it's, you know, Yugoslavia or Rwanda in the 1990s or the United States in 2020. That's not a prediction, but it is a suggestion that we can't indulge in hatred. You can't in, indulge or, or think to yourself, well, this maybe a little bit of violence would be helpful here. Probably it will stop. I don't think the United States is going to break down. I don't think stop toppling of statues leads to toppling of people next. But every step, it gets that much more likely. And it's always there as a potential outcome. You talk about mixing all this into a pandemic when people are suffering from cabin fever, a lot of anxiety Mm -hmm. and such. This can heighten some of these tensions. That being said, as this pandemic continues on and we slowly move out of it, can you see it changing 
our perception. So we are, because there's been a tremendous amount of divisiveness over the last few years and, and certainly uh, culminating with what's happening with this pandemic. You're either on that side or this side, it seems. So uh, that being said, as we get through this, and we start to lead perhaps a smaller life or, or think or value what is important, uh, will this change our perception? Will we unite as a result of this? I think for a variety of reasons, uh, Canada is definitely in a better place than the United States. And usually I'm the kind of person who likes to push, push back against knee-jerk Canadian anti-Americanism, probably because I've spent half my life in the States, half my family is American, and I think Canadian anti-Americanism can be ugly. But I really do think that uh, Canadians as a society have been lucky in that we've been able to manage the complexities of a multicultural society better than the United States. And that's not necessarily because Canadians are inherently better. It's that our, our history has put us in a luckier position. It's because we've been better able to handle issues like immigration and integration as opposed to the United, as opposed to the United States. So I do think that, um, I know I do think that we can be a little bit more optimistic here in Canada. Um, but for the states, I think they've gone such a long way down the path towards racial tribalism, you know, across the political spectrum. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, considerably more frightened for their for their uh, for their ability to adjust. And it's going to be difficult to adjust. Yes, I do. Everyone's crossing their fingers and hoping that uh, the covid era is something that's only going to last a few more months. So maybe there'll be a vaccine. But what if we're in a new era of worldwide pandemics? What if? COVID-19 is just the start of something, not the end. Well, we're going to have to find a lot of different ways to adjust. And we are going to have to, we we are going to, I hope Canadians get out in front of this more so than Americans have and simply say, you know, we can't indulge in violence. We can't indulge or accept extra legal political action, not when there are peaceful avenues open, right? If you want to protest, John A., if you want to raise a counter statue, if you want to provide additional information, you know, about the things he did, the, the crimes he was complicit in, then do it. Right. And I think we've already done a lot of that in Canada. But um, violent political action, I don't think is something that we can, you know, it's something we can accept. And but I think we also have to be aware that the tendency to seek outlets um, for our, our frustration at being more cooped up, uh, particularly perhaps for younger people whose futures have been imperiled um, by the shutdown, you know, unavoidably. I'm not saying that the shutdown is unnecessary, but just it has these economic consequences. Uh, we have to be aware that those kinds of problems are, are going to be with us. Let's talk about the violence and what we're seeing going on uh, in the United States. And it seems as the election campaign moves on, it has only stoked these fires. Uh, mm-hmm. Does the violence favor one campaign over the other, does it favor, favor Donald Trump's campaign, as the Democrats are accusing the president of? Is he encouraging this violence? Okay, I'm going to add a little caveat before I answer that. And the caveat is going to be, this is 2020, so it's a little bit difficult to know whether the patterns of the past are still going to be continuing. But everything I know from a 25 years studying American politics all my adult life would lead me to suggest that violence of this kind is going to help the Republican Party. And it's based on the conventional wisdom in political science that uh, there are some issues that the party owns, issue ownership, right? If this is an election season where everyone is talking about health care and focusing on the problems of health care and the different ways in which the parties approach the problems of health care, the Democrats win, right? Because in general, their approach to health care is more popular. There are complexities. When you get down to passing laws, it's always complicated. Not every Democratic politician is the same, but they own that issue. If you're talking about maintaining law and order, that has been the Republican Party's strength for practically as long as there has been a Republican Party. So I would be very surprised if this issue does not, uh, if, if the violence continues if it doesn't aid the Republicans. Uh, and I think that's what it means is that right now, I think the chance for a decisive repudiation of Trump in the sense of an overwhelming um, victory in the presidential election, that seems extraordinarily unlikely right now. 
That doesn't mean that the Republicans are going to win. But I think it's this issue of uh, disorder and violence in the streets that is making it a close election. Absent this development, uh, I think that Trump's mishandling of the uh, the COVID crisis would have uh, put him in a much, much worse situation. Uh, Donald Trump has said the violence is happening in Democratic cities. Uh, I believe it's the mayor of Portland today came out and spoke against uh, the president and, and the divisiveness uh, he is creating. Uh, your thoughts on those statements from the president? Well, I think there's a lot of blame to go around. I think that you can compare um, Trump's response to COVID with the response of Democratic mayors, Democratic governors to the issues of, of violence and violent protests. Whether you're talking about responding to a pandemic or responding to violence, these are, should not be issues that are politicized, but the temptation is always going to be there to politicize them. And I think Trump made an error in not trying to establish a broader grounds for consensus in addressing COVID. And I think Democratic governors, whether in Wisconsin or Oregon, I think they are going to pay the price for not being willing uh, to reach out to President Trump and to say that regardless of our political disagreements we might have, you know, we can all agree that violence in the streets is not going to solve these issues. And I think the the Democrats are going to pay a political price for this. Uh, This doesn't mean they're going to lose Oregon, right, as in the terms of the presidential electoral uh, electoral college. But I think Wisconsin is very much in play, Pennsylvania, Michigan, all the states that were key to Trump's victories in, uh, in 2016. Uh, obviously, uh, the first election, Donald Trump wasn't the incumbent. Uh, he is now. Uh, what about the fact that this is all happening on his watch? I think Trump has a pretty good argument here, which is that regardless of what he does, he's going to face criticism. It is true the president could send the National Guard into Oregon, into Wisconsin, right? However, when he did that, even on a relatively minor scale in Portland, in Portland, he was immediately accused by Democrats from across the United States as being a fascist. So he's taking the position that he wants to have some cooperation uh, from uh, Democratic politicians. So I think this notion that uh, Trump is going to somehow be held responsible for the violence, for not doing more, uh, I don't think that is going to be a very effective argument. Um, perhaps if it goes even further and he continues to do nothing or very relatively little, or if it was a situation where he's re- uh, rejecting pleas by governors to come in and provide assistance, uh, I think that would be damaging. But given the fact that uh, politicians in, uh, in Democrat-controlled states have been critical of federal presence, particularly in Oregon, uh, I don't think the, the notion that Trump will be held accountable for these acts of violence, I don't see that playing out this way. I think it is, I, I think it will be easier for the Republicans to rely on uh, the way they own that issue of law and order. Uh, in regard to, uh, obviously, still in the middle of a pandemic, COVID-19 is going on. Um, anything can happen in the next cu- a couple of months. So will this be uh, uh, about, as you said, uh, violence and, and the, what erupts in the next two months versus uh, what happens with COVID-19 and the grip that it has on the United States? It's either security versus health. Right. Right. It's, I mean, it's, it's difficult to know exactly what issue will come will become more prominent, but I really do think that uh, insofar as um, COVID cases, if they continue to increase throughout the fall, if there's a massive resurgence of cases, I think people will be reflecting more on, you know, what could Trump and the Republicans have done to avert this? At the very least, what could Trump and the Republicans have done to depoliticize the issue, to make it an issue where, uh, you know, there could be been a greater degree of bipartisan cooperation. So I think that if if the violence subsides the, and the COVID issue returns, I think we're back in a situation where Trump is going to be much more vulnerable. Uh, so at this point, is the violence and the unrest, the social unrest that's happening across Mer- America, is that overpowering the COVID-19 story? Is that getting more attention than COVID-19? I think right now, I think just many of the images that are coming out of Wisconsin and, of course, people being shot uh, and just the sense that things are flying out of control in a very serious way. Uh, I mean, it is always close to remember that when you're talking about the effects on people's lives, the COVID crisis is is much more significant. 
Nevertheless, it is easy to dramatize uh, the breakdown of public order. And in the case of particularly of Kenosha and Wisconsin, uh, the videos are, are, I think, are just shocking uh, in terms of just the scope of damage that has been done to a lot of different neighborhoods. Um, I think that this is, yes, I think this, if it continues, certainly, and been, I, I, I had anticipated that the, the issues of rioting surrounding uh, a police protest, the way protests have broken down to rioting, I thought it would be dying off by this point in the summer. But uh, it is not, and I think that it's, uh, even if on a grand scale, uh, it is not affecting people's lives in the same way as covid I think it is just so easy to dramatize. I think it is drawing a lot of attention, and I do think it is affecting the Democrats. So is the Biden-Harris ticket making the impact that some thought it would at this point? I think there was a lot of ambiguity or at least uncertainty about the selection of either either, um, Biden or Harris for the ticket. I think that there were reasons for people to be suspicious about whether Biden would be uh, effective as a campaigner. And I think there were reasons to be suspicious as to whether or not Harris would provide political heft to the ticket. I think that this selection of Harris showed a lot of confidence, a lot of political confidence, in the sense that in selecting Harris, you're, you're selecting someone with a lot of political experience, someone with a lot of demonstrated competence, someone who people can be confident that they will be an effective performer as the vice president, ready to take over the reins. But Harris, from my perspective, doesn't bring a lot to the political side of the equation. Right? So that's why I say her selection showed a sign of confidence, that Biden did not, doesn't need electric help in terms of electoral politics. He needs someone who will be there as a partner to run the presidency. Uh, I think now we are seeing that perhaps that might have been a mistake that the elect the election is going to be closer than Biden might have initially anticipated. And he has to hope that Harris will transform into a much more effective campaigner than she had been in the past. Uh, but she does not have a lot of political experience in a competitive political environment. Um, this is not to denigrate her as a politician or as a public official, but it's one thing to win campaigns in California Another thing to convince voters in rural Minnesota or Wisconsin. Hmm. So she doesn't have a lot of, you know, a lot of relevant political experience. She's not like a Midwestern senator um, like Klobuchar, who has had, in order to win, has to be able to appeal across party lines. Uh, so I think that uh, the the initial the initial choice showed a lot of confidence, and I think that. It might have been a slightly misplaced confidence. I think Biden might need more help in the political realm, in the electoral realm, than he anticipated. Ryan Hurl has been with us, assistant professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. Ryan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thank- Good to hear from you. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.